So some things that we get the wonderful privilege of getting to preach about, sometimes they're just very, very positive, very, very exciting, very, very, like, I look forward to it. It's like, yes, like, these are awesome things I get to get up here and talk about. It's exciting. And then there's other times where it's like, man, this is not fun to study. This is heavy. This is weighty. This it's really important and true, but it's not quite as, quote, exciting. And this was one of those weeks um, that it was just very deep, very, very, very important. And I'm really thankful that we don't ever skip over things like this, that we don't jump past them because they're not as encouraging, maybe, as they're, they're not as make you feel so happy-go-lucky. Um, but we're in Matthew 10. Um, last week, Tanner talked about that God was sending out the disciples. That he, we, we talked about each of the disciples briefly. Um, Tanner gave us some wonderful knowledge about the way that they're broken up, which was awesome. I had no idea. Um, I'm glad he reads good books um, that I might also happen to have. Um, but we saw that Jesus sent out his disciples. And it says he sent them out and he said... Go to the Jews. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go, don't go to the Samaritans. Go to the people of Israel and share this message. What we're going to see this week, this is the same kind of sermon, same teaching as last week, just kind of continuing. And he's also saying, but, but it's not going to stop there. We're also going to, you're going to go to the world. You're going to go to the Gentiles. You're going to go to the Samaritans. He said, right now you're going just to the Jews, but it's not going to stop there. So we're in Matthew 10, 16 through 23. It says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brothers will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Pray with me. God, we just are just thankful for your church, uh, thankful for your global church, that, that you have grown it as you have, that you have been in control from the very get-go. Father, that every move we make is ordained by you. And God, just, I'm just thankful that you are a God that is in control of everything. I pray, Father, this morning that we would hear your word, that we would um, just hear how we as the church, we as followers of Jesus are to interact with the world, what we are to expect from the world. And just the importance of the gospel, the importance of this message, this, the importance of sharing how good you've been, how you sent your son to die. 
Father, just open hearts, change hearts. Um, we know, Father, that only you can do that. Only you can make us be more like Jesus. Only you can form us and mold us. Speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, like I said, last week Jesus was teaching, was telling his disciples, his 12 disciples, here, you're going to go to Israel. You're going to preach this message, knowing that they're going to reject it. They're going to say, no, we don't like that. That's completely against this man-made religion that we have formed, that all these added things, these, these rules and laws and all these things that we've added on. This is against that. We don't like that. And so he's going to say, you're going to go to the Gentiles. You're going to end up going to the Samaritans. And what you'll see is that this is kind of a, a future teaching. He's talking about this persecution. They're, the disciples are not recorded of, as being persecuted before Pentecost, before Jesus has already ascended back to heaven. The church is being sent out, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that's when persecution comes. You'll see also in the teaching what Tanner talked about last week, he, he told them to um, cleanse lepers, raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons. They're not recorded as having raised the dead at this point. So there's some, there's some current application for them to go out and do these things, but there's also, it's going to keep going. You're going to continue teaching. You're going to continue healing even after Jesus is gone or hit, until he's ascended. But he tells them to be sheep in the midst of wolves. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep. And we, we've seen back in chapter 9, I think it's the last time I preached, Jesus said he had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep. They were helpless. They were without a shepherd. They were hopeless. And here he's saying, okay, now you're sheep. Go out into the wolves, which is completely unnatural. Natural wolves go to sheep. Eat the sheep, natural. Sheep going to the wolves, not so natural. And I was reading a lot this week about like growing up in the church, I've always heard different, different, different definitions or why are sheep, why are people called sheep? What does this mean as the church? What does this mean as people? And then I read, this is by John MacArthur. He says, sheep are perhaps the most dependent helpless and stupid of all domesticated animals. They are as often panicked by harmless things as they are by those that are dangerous. And when real danger comes, they have no natural defense except running, and they're not very good at that. I understand their pain in that. But no, most people haven't seen me run. If you have, I'm sorry. Brenna, don't. Um, so, sheep. What, is it, what does it mean to be a sheep in the midst of wolves? And then he, he goes on to clarify, you are to be wise, wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. Seems like very two contrasting comparisons, serpent, dove. But what does it mean to be wise? I've, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot. What does it mean to be wise as we interact with the world, as we interact with the wolves, as we interact with the unbelievers? that we encounter on a daily basis. And I think that comes into play a lot of different ways. 
Um, I, I kept coming back to this verse that we actually read last week, last Sunday night, 2 Timothy 2.16. It says, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people, people into more and more ungodliness. So as we're wise, we're very intentional with what we speak, with how we interact. We don't pick fights. We don't argue for the sake of arguing. We don't take all of our apologetic knowledge, all this knowledge we've gained from reading the Bible or reading books that talk about how to prove the Bible is true. We don't take all this and go pick arguments or pick fights just for the sake of winning an argument, just for the sake of using your knowledge. Irreverent babble. So, I started my job at ETSU this week, and like, Within a couple days, I first realized, wow, like I'm having lots of flashbacks from undergrad, just being involved on campus, seeing the different various opening week activities and various things that go along with that, seeing the preacher guy outside the library on Friday. It's like, hey, he comes to ETSU too, apparently. Um, not the same guy, but very similar commotion that's involved. And there was a guy that came to my university and very loud, outspoken, holds up signs saying, you're going to hell, all these things. And I listened to the theology that he was saying, and a lot of it is true. A lot of what he says, I believe like, okay, you're right, you're right. But how is he doing it? Like, is he picking, argue, is he picking fights? Is he bringing out people just that will combat him that he can scream at and they can yell back and just cause a big commotion? Like, is he pointing people to Jesus or is he pointing people away from his methods? And just thinking, how are we to be wise with the world as we interact with the world? Even if our message is true, is the way we interact, how is that important? And I think Jesus is saying, you're being wise. You are going out as a sheep amidst wolves. But we're not going out as wolves against wolves. Being wise doesn't mean we're using big words. We're using fancy words. I like to try to throw out one occasionally just to sound smart. But he's saying, like, you're not being wise just because you're using big words, just because you know your apologetics. You know how to defend the Bible as, as if it needs defended. But he says we also go out, we're innocent. Innocent as doves. I think those are very, they go hand in hand. You're innocent. And you're wise. But know that, I said it's unnatural for the sheep to go to the wolves. But to know that the shepherd is the one sending the sheep to the wolves. And Jesus declares that he is the good shepherd but that we're being sent into a battle. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But we're being sent into a battle. And Jesus says, beware of men. Beware of men. Which at first I was like, wait, didn't he say our battle is not against man, it's not against physical things, it's against Satan and his forces, right? Yes. But he says, beware of men. Believers are, uh, sorry, unbelievers are opposed to the gospel. We've talked about, I think it was back in chapter 7 maybe, that Tanner preached and said, there's no middle ground here. Either 
you believe this, either you are saved, you are in, or you're not. There's not this middle ground where you say, I don't have a belief. I, I, I'm neutral. I'm not in. I'm not out. I'm just kind of on the deciding line. You're not neutral. And we know that unless God opens the hearts of unbelievers, they're going to stay unbelievers. They're going to stay hostile to the gospel. And these are men that we're talking about. These are people that we see on a daily basis. Women, you're not excluded, sorry. These are people that we see on a daily basis. And not everyone's going to believe that there's going to be people that are adamantly against the gospel. There's going to be people that are adamantly against this thing that we're talking about. But we're to know that these same men don't necessarily hate us. They hate Jesus. And he says, like, if, if people hate you, they hated me first. He says that in John 15. Even next week. I'm not going to get It says, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Belzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Like, they hated Jesus, they're going to hate us because we associate with Jesus, because Jesus has associated us with him. And people got so angry at this because the Jews especially realized that if what Jesus was saying was true, that had huge implications for their life. If what Jesus was saying was true, it was going to have huge implications that they wanted no part of. Because Tanner said this last week that the gospel message that we bring is the best news in the world for some people. That they've been convicted of their sin. They know that they need something else. And the gospel shows them exactly what they need. But he also said that to some, the gospel is the worst news possible. Because it shows them their sin. And they want no part of it. Verse 18 says, it says, And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Because they hate the message that we are bringing, it says they are dragging, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Due to persecution, there is opportunity to bear witness for the sake of Jesus' name. Thinking about Paul in Philippians 1, he says that the whole imperial guard knew that he was in chains for Jesus. The whole imperial guard knew this because he was in chains. Because if we believe that Jesus is sovereign, that he's in control, if we believe that God is in control, and that he ordains that persecution, then, then it's for the sake of his name. It's not about us. It's not about us and the persecution. It's not about us and what we're facing. It's about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It's always going to be about Jesus. But that this is real. This persecution is real. And I don't think that we 
understand persecution. I really, really don't. There's some things that we read about it, we listen to people preach about it, we, we hear stories about missionaries, we hear stories about people, but I really don't think we get it. My, I'm including myself here. I don't think we get it. In our culture, there, there is no cost often associated with, with claiming Christ. With claiming to be a Christian, there is no cost. We've heard various stories recently of people that might, there might be a small cost of, oh, they're, now they're being sued for a, their business being sued because they denied service to someone because of their beliefs. There's been, there's been things like that, and I don't know what that looks like for the future. But on a global scale, here there is such little cost. I think so many people attach themselves to the label of Christian because it's convenient. Because they've been told they're Christian, so of course they're a Christian. They've been told, this is how you grow up. This is who you are in Bible Belt, Southern Tennessee. East Tennessee, I guess. In the South. Like, this is who you are. You're a Christian. I've gone back and forth about how I feel on this, but I feel like persecution to a real, deep, suffering extent would purify the church. That all of a sudden you've got people that would no longer claim Christ as a title. They would not claim to be a Christian for the sake of being a Christian. All of a sudden you're going to have a church full of followers of Jesus and not just, I'm a Christian. And I don't think that the church should ever seek out persecution. I really don't. I don't think that Jesus ever taught, go seek to be persecuted because you'll be blessed if you're persecuted. That's not what he says. But as we've seen all throughout church history, I know Tanner's alluded to this before. I don't know if it was preaching or just talking. I don't remember when it was. But all through church history, what you see, starting in Acts, when there was persecution the church just exploded. When there was genuine persecution and people, it costed them something, they realized the importance of it and the church grew. But what he's saying that in the midst of persecution, something we've continually talked about, something we've continually taught and that I keep trying to tell myself is we've got to stop trying to do this ourselves. And that from the bottom up. Like, when, when you constantly try to earn salvation yourself, you're left discouraged, you're left hopeless because you realize that you're not good enough. And we realize, it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. When we, when we keep trying to make ourselves have more faith so God will work, when we continue to say, God, I need more faith, I need more faith so then God can work in my life, we're left discouraged. We're left thinking like, we don't have enough. And Jesus is saying, no, like, just let me work. Trust in me. The more we try to do for ourselves, the more and more discouraged, exhausted we get. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying people are freaking out. People are nervous. What am I going to say when persecution comes? What am I going to say when that atheist professor comes and bashes me? What am I going to say? I don't know what I'm going to say. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. 
For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I watched the God's Not Dead movies. We took my clients in my last job to go see it. And I've got mixed feelings about those movies. There's some good parts. There's some parts I'm just like, eh. But the one part in the newer one, God's Not Dead 2, I guess, she's in trial, all this stuff, and she's praying, I can't do this. I've got nothing. Granted, she wouldn't got a lawyer, but she's like, I've got nothing. God, like, I'm not equipped to, faith, to fight this battle. And I think that's where you're at. That's where you got to be. Like, we're not, okay, when this persecution is coming, okay, I better go study apologetics so I can fight the battle. I better go read all these books so I know how to talk to people. I know how to, to, to argue my case. I'm not saying don't read books. I'm not saying don't educate yourself. That's not the point. But God says, when that comes, just let me do it. Let me speak through you. Don't be so concerned about what you're going to say that you don't say anything. But then Jesus says, it's not just the courts, it's not just the governments that you got to be prepared for. The persecution comes through your families, through your friends. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against his parents and have them put to death. Reference those two movies. I've thought a couple times as you read about Christians that are persecuted, that fear for their de- fear for their lives because of persecution around the world, and they they see that the American church is freaking out over a movie about a, a guy that's persecuted in front of a in classroom, and he might lose a little bit of respect, and that's the, the battle that's being fought in America. And then there's other Christians all over the world that are berated, that are that are killed. That are, that are at fear for their lives. In those, in those movies, I'm really not trying to bash those movies. I think that that's a real reality that Christians in America do face, and it's important, and I'm not trying to downplay that. But just a small part in those movies is, in the first one, I believe, there's a Muslim girl who's completely disowned from her family, completely kicked out, disowned because of her belief. In the second one, there's a Chinese guy that his father disowns him and he says, you are not my son because he says, I want to follow Jesus. Like those are real things that people around the world are facing on a daily, hourly, minutely basis. And I don't think we quite get it. As I talk to people in China, we would talk about what does it mean to, to what, is, what is a Christian? Well, who is Jesus? What all this? And like they would be seeking him, often college kids who are away from family, away from friends. And usually the sticking point came when they said, what's my mom going to think? What's my dad going to think? Are they going to cut off my college tuition? Are they, are, are they going to still accept me? That, that, that's real for people. Brother will deliver brother, father their child, and children will rise against parents. 
It says we'll be hated by all because of what we believe, because of who Jesus is, because of this message. Verse 22 is a very difficult part. Something that, as I read, a lot of people struggle with verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hold up. Like, are you saying that if I don't endure to the end, if I, if I like cave under pressure, if I have a lapse of faith and say, no, I don't know Jesus, just to be, sa- just to be saved from the current issue that I'm dealing with, does that mean that all of a sudden your salvation is gone? I don't think that's what it's saying at all. He's not saying that if you deny Christ, that someone says, are you a Christian? And you freak out and say, no. I don't think he's saying that your salvation is gone. This is an idea that the global church disagrees on in various denominations, various theological views, and all this. Like, can you lose your salvation? Is it once saved, always saved? Or is it something that you continually have to work out your salvation? You continually have to, 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 to keep I'm going to read Romans 8, 29 through 30. I think it's going to be up there. Yes. I'm going to read this. Darn. Uh, it says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, he being God, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you go through that progression, there's not any lost in that equation. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Not some of those he foreknew, predestined, or justified, but all. But you notice... There's, I don't, I don't know my English. Tori probably knows this. The he. Is that a pronoun? Maybe. Sure. The he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. They're saying that if Jesus is making you more and more like him, if God is changing your heart to be more like Jesus, then you are going to endure. He's not saying if you endure... Then you, then you all of a sudden earn your salvation. He's saying that if you're saved, if you are in Christ, then you will endure. There's a huge, huge difference. If you believe that God is in control of that, that God is the one that grants salvation, then He is the one in control from the beginning to the end of that. It's not something that we earn, that we somehow endure this persecution so we can be saved. That's not at all the case. But it's the rest of 23, 22 and 23 that, that I really struggled with. As I read this week, it's a conversation that we've had a lot often in CGs and um, various times here as we've been going through Matthew. But it says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
So wait, like we talked about when do you stay consistent in someone's life over, over years and years, praying that God would open their heart and you keep sharing with them, keep sharing with them because you want them to know Jesus so bad. When do you, when do you move on? When do you use your valuable time and, and your resources or whatever to, to, to maybe share with someone else? How, how do you know that? I know we've talked about it in guys group. We've talked about it in CGs. We've talked about it here. And I think the only answer to that is God's through his Holy Spirit, is going to have to show us how to do that. But I don't think what Jesus is saying is that if you're persecuted, if someone says, no, I'm not buying your goods because you're a Christian, okay, well, I'm going to go start a business in another town. I don't think that's what he's saying. Because if that's the case, if any sort of persecution leads to you leaving, then Paul directly disobeyed that numerous times. But what you'll see is that if we see, if we kind of use Paul's example of how he obeyed this command, you'll see that when he left, it was because he, he could no longer be effective in his ministry because of persecution. That the church faces persecution on a, on a daily basis all around the world. And they don't leave just because that persecution is there. But if they can no longer be effective because of the persecution, Maybe that's when they leave. Maybe that's when you shake your boots or shake your sandals or whatever um, it said. Shake the dust off your feet. Sorry. No sandals or boots. But all throughout the church, persecution is how the church is spread. Started in Acts. If you want a great explanation of all this, just read Acts. I'm not going to go through it all. We'll do a two-minute version here. In Acts 7 and 8, you see this church has been kind of holed up in Jerusalem. Jesus said, wait. Wait for the coming of my Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's there. It came. And now they're there. And all of a sudden, Stephen's preaching. Stephen is stoned at the feet of Saul. And then it says the church fled. They were scattered. But Acts 8, 4, I've used this a couple times. Acts 8.4 reads, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That the church in the midst of persecution, the church in the midst of a leader of their church being stoned, scattered. They left Jerusalem. They went about planting churches. They went about making disciples. They would, plant, they would go on to plant a church that would then send out the, the Paul that Jesus had radically changed. But this persecution of the church, I believe, was totally directed by God. Was totally directed by God as he said, this is how my church is going to spread. This is how my church is going to go. I've heard a couple different times that over the last 50 years, the churches that have grown the fastest are the ones facing direct persecution from governments, from outside forces, from militant groups, whatever. Those are the churches that are growing the fastest. Because to claim Christ means something. That we as the church are in the middle of this battle. The battle between God and the forces of Satan. 
And again, I've, I've used this passage as well. But there's this battle that's described. And listen, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. It says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see the various progressions there. That it says the God of this world, this Satan, is working through non-believers. And that's directly leading to the persecution of the church. That the non-believers in this world are directly fighting against the church. And then verse 6. Go ahead and flip to verse 6 real fast. Sorry, I skipped 4. Alright. But, but then you've got God saying He's shining in the hearts of believers to give the knowledge of the glory of Himself in the, through Jesus. But then right in the middle, in verse 5, you have us proclaiming Christ. Right in the middle of Satan fighting through man and God shining His light, you have us proclaiming Christ. Because if we truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if we truly believe that our only hope is in Him, if we truly believe that He is worth it all, if He is this pearl that we've talked about, this pearl worth treasuring, if we truly believe that, then the persecution doesn't matter. The persecution is for Jesus. We know that. You saw Peter, you saw, you saw Paul rejoicing in the fact that they were counted as worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. But this is what the global, this is what the local church is called to do, to proclaim Christ. Maybe this is what the church needs. I don't say we pray for persecution. But we pray for boldness. We pray for the church when persecution does come. We've left a lot of sermons recently saying that God, ask God to change your heart. Ask God to make you more like Him. It, ask God to, to have, to, for Him to give you love for people that you don't love. To have compassion on people that He has compassion on. This week is no different than that. But I think that we absolutely have to pray. I mean, pray for, our believer, for believers around the world that are genuinely facing life and death persecution. Pray for the church. That they'd be bold. That the church would grow in the midst of persecution. But that we would love the church not saying seriously, we would love the Big C Church so much so that we would pray for them. Pray that the American church might wake up and kind of realize to whatever extent the persecution that's around the world. Because I think if we truly realize that, we would live a whole lot differently. I think that if we realized what claiming Christ means 
what, what being a Christian means to many people throughout the world, our priorities, our lives, the time we spend doing who knows what, would be a lot different. But pray that God would give you boldness, would give you wisdom when we interact with the wolves of this world. As we are sheep in the midst of wolves, that we would be bold and that when these things come, I don't know what our culture, what our country, what persecution looks like here in the next 5, 10, 50, 100 years. I have no idea, but I don't think it's going to get any less. But I pray that we would treasure Jesus, that we realize that, yeah, we are hopeless. We've got absolutely no hope. But if what Jesus says is true, then we do have hope. That we can trust that Jesus is enough in the midst of persecution, whether that be a professor claiming that God is dead, or whether that be someone claiming to kill you if you claim Christ. It doesn't matter. But that we would be bold enough to say that Jesus is enough and that he's all we need.